Hey, I'm Russell, one of the pastors at Reliance Church. Welcome to my home. I'm thrilled to share with you from the scriptures today. If you have a Bible or device, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be starting in verse 21. Last week, we heard from Pastor Sam, and he shared about how we glory in the cross. He spoke on how sweet Good Friday is because of the death of Christ, but also how toxic the sin of humanity is that without your sin and my sin, Without the brokenness of humanity, there would be no need for the cross. And then on Easter, Pastor Ted expounded on the far-reaching love of God as we realized how drastic the measures were that God took to take our sin upon himself. And now in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Verse 24, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Verse 28, And so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear from you today. We recognize that your word is living and active. We pray that today it would discern the thoughts and intents of our hearts. We ask that you would conform us to the image of Christ. We pray that you would do this work by your spirit. We ask it in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Listen to this statistic. Every year, 22% of Christians around the world pray to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior again. 22% of those who already call themselves Christians. How do I know that? I don't. I made that number up. However, it is true that a large number of professing Christians struggle with this question. You ready? Am I really saved? Am I born again? Or am I just a fraud? When you're young, you believe that you can be anything. A doctor, a firefighter, a pilot, T-Rex, sky's the limit. But once you grow up, you realize that the true limit is your own laziness and ineptitude. And the most you can be is usually a minimum wage employee and or clinically depressed. But one dedicated man decided that nothing was going to keep him from achieving his dreams. Not society, not the law, not even basic logic. Especially not basic logic. Let me tell you a story. Everyone deals with death differently. When Tom Parkin's mother died in 2003, he raided her closet, put on her clothes, and donned her wig. He successfully stole his mother's 
identity. That way he could cash her social security checks. But this wasn't just about the social security money. No, it wasn't also about grief and mental trauma. It was about other kinds of money. Parkin further hoped to get his mother's home, a Brooklyn brownstone, but he couldn't afford to keep making the payments. That's what the social security money was being used for, a $2 million real estate fraud. But even though Parkin was able to renew his mother's driver's license and cash her checks, not everyone was fooled by the stunningly accurate old lady costume, which consisted of ugly sweaters, oversized sunglasses, and a walker. Police eventually did apprehend Tom Parkin six years and $44,000 later. And after these allegations, the police finally catching up with him, they, they did a thorough investigation which consisted of looking at him for a second. Well, Tom Parkin got 13 years for grand larceny and mortgage fraud. And although he still maintains that he did nothing wrong, and he's right, of course, if you don't count literally everything he had done up to that point. Well, just as Tom Parkin paraded around his mother's clothes, said things she would say, did things she would do, and even convinced a lot of people that he was Carol Parkin, eventually he was exposed as a fraud after the police were able to, in their words, look at him for a second. Well, how about you and me? Spiritually speaking, what would happen if we looked at ourselves for a second? The Apostle Paul said to test yourselves, to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? This word examine, pirazo, it means to put to test in order to ascertain or discover the nature of something including imperfections, faults, or other qualities. Don't you just love that? Who in their right mind wants to be thoroughly examined, to have all of our thoughts, actions, and beliefs just laid out there, put to the test, the good, the bad, and the ugly? Well, this is where many will do whatever they can to turn this message off. It's not a popular one. There are many other messages that can tickle an itching ear, We've been trained to crave that which numbs the conscience but doesn't benefit the soul. This examining, it can be understood in a legal sense as standing trial. If you and I were in a courtroom for our faith, what kind of things would you say to defend yourself? Well, Thomas Watson, one of the great Puritan preachers of the 17th century, made some very helpful statements on this subject. In the context of Psalm 77, King David said, I commune with my heart. David put interrogatories to himself. Self-examination is the setting up of court and conscience and keeping a register there. That by a strict scrutiny, a man may know how things stand between God and his own soul. Self-examination is a spiritual inquisition of bringing oneself to trial. A good Christian doth, as it were, begin the day of judgment here in his own soul. Self-searching is a heart anatomy. As a surgeon, when he makes a dissection in the body, discovers the intestines, the inward parts, the heart, liver, arteries. So a Christian anatomizeth himself. He searcheth what is flesh and what is spirit, 
What is sin and what is grace? Tis hard to look inward. External acts of religion are easy. To lift up the eye to heaven, to bow the knee, to read a prayer. This requires no more labor than for a priest to roll over his beads. But to examine a man's self, to turn in upon his own soul, to take the heart as a watch in all pieces and see what is defective, this is not easy. Reflexive acts are hardest. The eye can see everything but itself. It is easy to spy the faults of others, but hard to find out our own. Examination of a man's self is difficult because of self-love. As ignorance blinds, so self-love flatters. Every man is ready to think the best of himself. Well, come back with me to Matthew 7. Jesus makes a difficult statement. He says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. That phrase is common among born-again followers of Christ. This phrase, Lord, Lord, we say, Lord, we thank you for this day. Jesus is Lord. We probably say Lord four or five times every time we pray. But Jesus is being very direct here in Matthew 7. It's a very authoritative statement. It's not just a nice guy speaking. This is a Lord. And we've made him into a decency cop, but he's not that at all. He's a Lord, the Lord. And he challenges our idols, which are many. The reason we try to domesticate Jesus is because it's hard to live with the Lord. Lords are very difficult. They're masters who claim absolute loyalty. Why do we try to reduce the Lordship of Christ? I believe it's because we try to qualify the demands of discipleship on our lives. We marginalize the demands of discipleship down until the Lordship of Christ means nothing. So that we can still worship Jesus, but he has no significant Lordship, no impact on my life. Western Christianity has become a master at this. We domesticate him because it's hard to live with the Lord. You try to follow him. It's demanding. The closer we get to him, the more dangerous he is to all of our middle-class comforts. And to be honest with you, uh, our Reliance Church pastors try to keep a sermon ready in our back pocket in case we need to step in to preach a message at any moment. And I was almost finished with my back pocket sermon on the love of God, where I would have taken us through all the displays of Scripture of God's love for you and me, and when I was called to preach, I was so excited. My message was almost ready anyway. And, and, and then I went to pray, and God impressed on my heart this message instead. It's not the most feel-good message, but this is what happens when we posture our hearts to submit to Christ and strive according to His power that works in us mightily. When we do that, we experience love in our failure and in our prosperity. That's where the Lord meets us. Acts 2.21 says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In Romans 10.13, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And these saved people, the ones who can say, Jesus is my Savior, are those who call upon Jesus to be their Lord. 
born-again Christians come under the authority of Christ. And if you take the words of Jesus seriously, they call into question so many other things that we take seriously. It's risky. That's why it's easier to just marginalize him. And and what we do is we slowly take him out of every other sphere until it becomes a religious God where God has no relevance to any other aspect of economic or political or, or any other aspect of our lives. You can't overlook how accurately Revelation 3 describes the Western church, the famous Laodicean church where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This isn't a, an evangelistic message necessarily. This is, this is Jesus, the Lord, knocking on the door of the church, asking if he can come in. And you've got to ask the question, what's he doing on the outside when all the people are inside worshiping him? Something for us to take a walk with. The Laodicean church has no need of anything much like America, well-fed, productive, wealthy, and they've lost their first love, their defining love, and Jesus calls them to repentance, or he will spit them out of his mouth. We don't let God have his way in our lives because he's all-consuming, and that frightens us. It threatens our securities, and we're rebellious, so we say, no thank you, Lord, lowercase l, of course, because we deny him the authority that he demands. We're rebels, and we fear that he's going to undo us. Yet we know that he is good, but he's a Lord. So he's not safe for our idols. Well, notice what's emphasized in verse 22. Jesus continues. He says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? I mean, cast out demons? They're pleading with God on judgment day and talking about how they cast out demons. If they're casting out demons and not getting into the kingdom, do I even have a chance? Well, look again. What is the basis by which they're pleading with God? They're pointing out all of their accomplishments to God. Do you think they had stopped to examine themselves while they were accomplishing all these great things in Jesus' name? Do you think they really had a healthy examination of where their faith actually was? Well, I'm going to read from Luke's account of the gospel. In chapter 18 of Luke, we see the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Starting in verse 9 of Luke 18. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were religious and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, which is uh, someone who just has great confidence in their own you know, righteousness and their own religious practices, and the other a tax collector. Uh, he was a despised tax collector, so maybe like a modern-day IRS agent. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I... Thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give you 10% of all my income. I tithe like I'm supposed to. 
and the tax collectors standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14, Jesus said, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We see this contrast between these two approaches to, uh, to God in their own righteousness, their own standing. But we notice that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now back to Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to pick up in verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. He says, whoever, whoever hears what Jesus says and does it, it isn't just a hearer of the word, but a doer. Everything Jesus says. I mean, he just spent from Matthew 5 through Matthew 7 giving us the greatest sermon to ever be preached. It's worth reading. And it'll make you want to slap a WWJD bracelet on your wrist and take you back to the 90s. But it's much more than a list of verses that tell us how to act like Jesus. The heart of doing what Jesus says is cultivated in the context of relationship. Going through the Sermon on the Mount reveals how far we are from the holiness of God. It backs us into a corner and demands that we hear and do the sayings of Jesus but we find nothing good dwells in ourselves. We find the banner over our lives is Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The gospel declares that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It carries us from intellectual acknowledgement to blood-bought, heartfelt, I will never leave you nor forsake you relationship with God. A born-again Christian doesn't just know the Word of God. We know the God of the Word. And the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, transforms the child of God into the image of the Son of God. That's the beauty, the beauty of redemption under the Lordship of Christ. And Jesus says, continuing in verse 24, Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. So now we come to the parable of the wise and foolish builder. This parable gives us an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I want you to notice a few things. The, the house represents the wise man's life. He's called wise because he hears what God says and does it. This man chose to have a foundation for his house. Also notice the inevitable storm. The parable reads like this storm is imminent, that it comes with the nature of the territory. He builds his house and Eventually, the storm comes. Welcome to life on earth. That's how it works. But even though 
storms are expected, they can still blindside us, can't they? Think with me about the book of Job, one of the oldest books in the Old Testament. It, it seemed like Job was minding his own business, being the best man he knew how to be. He was very prosperous. But in an instant, his life was upended. He lost his land, his livelihood, his children, and even his health. This guy was described as blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And then the Apostle Paul, he was shipwrecked, beaten, persecuted, but also lived a life of prosperity for periods of time. And he really sums up his experience with the contrast by saying, I've come to find that there are two main classrooms that God teaches us in. He says, there's classroom A, where I, I've learned to be content in prosperity, to where all the good things that God has provided, where we're rejoicing in the Lord for all the great things in my life. We learned some great lessons in that place. And then there's another classroom. We'll call it classroom B. All the things that shape us differently, where we might say, I've learned to go without. I've learned in the midst of pain and struggle and all this kind of stuff. There's something about a humbling spirit that's in the middle of that. God uses circumstances to shape people. He uses these different seasons of life's experiences to shape us in unforeseen ways. So there are these, these two classrooms that we go through. God brings us into these settings so that we learn to have a humble, quiet spirit, that we learn contentment with Jesus as a Lord of our life. To be honest, I'd rather have all my lessons go through classroom A I think I learned well there, but in reality, the most powerful lessons I've learned thus far come out of category B, where God takes us and shapes us and takes us into painful things and struggling things, where he brings about his best in us, brings about God's great work inside of us, changes how we speak to people, how we share the gospel and teach, how we walk people through their pain, it changes us. God calls us to be enlisted and submitted to King Jesus, having the rough edges worked off of us in such a way that we're more usable in the kingdom. God calls us to be those who understand the very nature of ministry. It's where we learn to say things like, the Lord gives and takes away. Naked I came and naked I will go. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We're continuing in verse 26. Jesus says, But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Notice the contrast between the wise man and the foolish man. Jesus says, the fool hears my word, but does not do it. He built his house on the sand. That's it's not a foundation. This isn't necessarily a parable of, of contrasting which foundation you choose. It, it reveals that the person who hears God's word and does it has a solid foundation on the rock. But the person 
who doesn't has no foundation at all. Some just don't see their need for Jesus. And why should they if he's just someone we visit on Easter and Christmas? If we have a form of godliness but deny its power, then we're left with false hope in the midst of troubled waters because they will come. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. In this parable, Jesus warns us that the foundation of our lives will be shaken sometime or another, both now in trials and in the ultimate judgment before God. And it's better that we test the foundation of our life now rather than later and our judgment before God when it's too late to change our destiny. Because when the whirlwinds pass by, the wicked are no more, but the righteous have an everlasting foundation. Verse 28, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Are you amazed at the teaching of Jesus today? I know I am. This book continues to speak 2,000 years later, and I ask the question, like, how is that? And I've realized that this Jesus is He's the God-man, the express image of God. He's very personal and relational, and I pray that he invades your home today, that he goes into those rooms that are closed and full of depression, that he finds that heart hiding in fear, the lonely sitting in silence, the prideful clenching in frustration, that the weary soul who feels the heaviness of life and the soul that sees their need for Jesus today. I pray that he meets every one of those needs and and many others. Well, we're going to go into a time of communion. I want to invite you to grab a cracker or bread and a drink and take communion with me from your home or wherever you are. I'm going to read from Mark's account of the gospel in Mark 14, starting in verse 22. This is where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Verse 22, he says, and as uh, it reads, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, take, eat. This is my body. And then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. Verse 24, and he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Verse 26, notice this. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Did you catch that last part? Verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, we do know the songs they sung that night. In your Bible, you may have the reference, and you'll find that it's listed as Psalm 113 to 118. They're called the Hallel Psalms, and they're noted for their spirit of joy and thanksgiving. If we were in an Orthodox setting, you'd hear all six songs sung on many of the Jewish holidays. The first of those 
uh, holy days is Passover. The Passover meal for Jesus and his men would have lasted for hours, as it still does today. It's likely that Jesus and the disciples were in their private room until midnight. At that point, they sang the last of the Hillel songs to wrap up a memorable meal and then headed to their camping site at the foot of the Mount of Olives. There was an oil press there, and it provided a quiet place for Jesus to pray. As you know, Judas knew of this site too. Memorable night? I think so. Jesus had washed the feet of the disciples, shocking them into silence. Once they were listening, he had explained again that he was about to die for them. They all took part in the most symbolic meal in Jewish life. And Jesus reinterpreted it as a meal that symbolized his own life. Somewhere in the mix, Judas slipped in to the darkness and perhaps even as the other disciples were protesting how they would never betray Jesus, they all would betray him within a matter of hours. Jesus was arrested in the garden beaten savagely, illegally tried, stripped of his skin by a scourging and crucified. The turn of events was so shocking, the disciples who survived that night would never get over it. The scene was so gruesome. It appeared that demonic forces had carried that day, and yet they had just pronounced that God was in complete control as they sang the last psalm of the Hallel collection. And you know the words more than likely. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Wasn't that the happy, clappy song from church camp? Yeah, that's the one. Only Jesus didn't sing it in that particular rhythm and chord chart, nor were the words projected on a big screen in the upper room. But they sang it nonetheless. And in all that would seem to go wrong, they literally proclaimed that God had planned it all. This is the day. This day. There was never another day in history like it. There had never been one like it before. It was the day. And it was, as the song had said, of the Lord's doing. On that day, Jesus did what he did for us. He sang about that day at hand as if it was going to be a great day and not a horrible one. He sang as if he knew we too would one day consider it a marvelous day. So it was. Therefore rejoice, friends, and be glad in it. Hebrews 12, 2 says that it was for the joy that was set before him he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Have you taken the time to examine yourself today? If judgment day were now, would you say, Lord, Lord, have I not done all these things in your name? Or would your only plea be the righteousness of Jesus on your behalf? He died for you. He died for your sins in your place. 
He's our Lord and our Savior. If you've never made a profession of faith, I want to invite you to repent and believe on Jesus right now. The demands of the Lord are great, but it doesn't matter how bad you think you are. The cross of Christ is the bridge between the Lord of the universe and sinful man. There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Our pastors and leaders are standing by to pray with you. You can call 951-595-7698 or type simply jes.us slash prayer into your internet browser to receive that prayer. And for all who are in Christ, let's take the bread and the cup. These are a symbol of Christ's body and his blood poured out for us, his body broken for us. So let's take them together. We look back at what he's done for us on the cross and because of the resurrection, we also look forward to the day when we take communion resurrected with Christ. The last time Christ took communion was the night before his crucifixion. The next time he drinks of the vine will be with us in heaven. If you receive Christ today, we want to come alongside you and support you in your faith. You can type simply jes.us forward slash new believer in your browser if you've made a profession of faith today. We also want to connect with you. If you'd like to be connected to our Reliance congregation, you can type simply jes.us forward slash connect for that. Well, it's been an honor to share with you from the scriptures today. We miss you. We look forward to seeing you soon. But for now, Let's worship together.